and welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, August 23rd, 2019. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm going to talk quickly because there's a lot to get to today. And I won't be doing a lot of talking on the program. I'll be playing previously recorded interviews with other folks. And I want to say thank you to the people listening in. I appreciate it. <sighs> that's a that's a rough intro for you. Uh, yeah, so we're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. And want to say thank you to everyone for, for tuning in. I think I already said that. Also, a acknowledgement that we are on Ohlone land. And I want to encourage folks, if you haven't already, um, there's a lot of resources where folks can learn more about the land we're on. And one such place to go for some suggested reading is a page that was put up by the White Noise Collective, and it's called conspireforchange.org. And once you're there, if you go to the resources tab and then decolonization, there is a suggested reading list, which includes a native land interactive map, contemporary Ohlone history, and many more pieces of information that folks can check out. So I'm wanting to share that with all the listeners out there. There's lots of events happening. Of course, August is the 30, 30 days of momentum. So every day in August, there has been groups outside of ICE headquarters in San Francisco at 630 Sansom Street from noon to 1 p.m., sometimes noon to 2 p.m. And there's a invite. There's an event invite for the different events on Facebook, so folks can find that out there. And I'll be providing more information throughout the program, so encourage folks to come through if you can. Also, folks are continuing to protest outside of Palantir. And they... Yeah, I'm already groaning. I'm already groaning. Well, that's what happens when a dumbass tech company like Palantir decides to renew their contracts with ICE. Many people have been showing up to say, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to work for you. So there are people who are saying, no, we're not going to do this. However, we need more people to refuse to work with a fascistic agency. And unfortunately, there's a lot of fascistic agencies here. However, it takes one person to say, no, I won't do this. I refuse to take part in this. And the more people who can say, no, I'm not going to do this, the easier it will be for people, others to show up like that. <sighs> wow. Start off the show with some music. The first is a song by Coco Rosie with Anoni called Smoke Em Out. And then what, next up, we heard The Comet is Coming with Summon the Fire. And we'll be playing some more music throughout the show. I really want to get started right away because I initially was going to play one piece of a podcast from The Intercept about the U.S.'s role in Central America. And I think it's crucial to understand a lot of us aren't taught what actually has happened in this country, either in school, through the media. We're taught lies, if we're taught anything at all. And for folks who suddenly are upset in 2016 and don't recognize what was already in place and what has been in place for generations of U.S. imperialism, it people are very angry at the current administration. And yes, the current administration is awful and they're doing a lot of terrible things. And also a lot of the pieces have been in place under Democratic presidents as well. So the idea that somehow things have just started getting bad, it's not an excuse. And even getting this administration out, which we do need to do, if we replace them with another a corporate Democrat, for instance, there still will be a lot of harm caused around the world. So I was looking for some research on this, and The Intercept had a lengthy podcast called Killing Asylum, How Decades of U.S. Policy Ravaged Central America. And it was posted on The Intercept website on November 28, 2018. 
and uh, Jeremy Scahill is the the host of the show. And this podcast is about an hour and a half, and it goes into a few other news items as well. So that's one thing I wanted to play. And then last night uh, there was an article I saw that from 1977 it was the CIA fucking with people's moods. That's a that's my abridged version summary of the article. And a friend of mine posted some more information about how now with mass surveillance and technology, how it's even worse now. So with the, with the large tech companies spying on us and using our data, et cetera. So there's a lengthy interview that's also almost two hours with the author of a book that talks just about that. And so I'm going to bring that up now so I can give a full introduction to that. And I'll probably do the... U.S. history piece first and maybe play like a little bit of that and then I'll go into the other piece and if folks are interested you can uh, watch or listen to them all further. <sighs> so the the other podcast I'll be playing a little bit later is called The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism and it was posted again by The Intercept on March 1st, 2019 so you could find that online and it's an interview with Shoshana Zuboff uh, who's the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. And it's a conversation with Naomi Klein. So we're going to start off actually with the other one. Um, and Killing Asylum, How Decades of U.S. Policy Ravaged Central America. I will cut it off at some point. I'll try to maybe fast forward. I, there's a lot to it. And I'll start off by playing it now. And uh, yeah, we'll get into some more in a little bit. So I'm going to wait a moment for this to start, and uh, we'll be back in a bit. Oh, it was nothing, really. But and the introduction is, I think I can just talk through. So I'm going to just talk through the introduction. Oh, also, the president this week, oh, fucking asshole. Uh, just had a lot more anti-Semitic comments that were made, and just wanting to name that. And I did see a cartoon that the Jewish Worker, which is an account I follow on Twitter, posted. And it's, it's a political cartoon, so I can't quite do it full justice in terms of describing it in words. But it's a bunch of folks with rifles and red MAGA hats aiming at two people who are blindfolded against a wall. And one of the people who's blindfolded says, well, at least he was good on Israel. And that's pretty much what we're, we're seeing with the far right wing supporting this current administration and um, at the same time targeting leftists and Jews and many folks, poor folks, elderly, black folks, immigrants, Latinx folks, children, queer folks, trans folks, the list goes on and on. Disabled folks, it's nonstop. So women, I mean, ugh. anyway, so just wanting to name that and call attention to that. And the rhetoric just keeps on, keeps on coming and people still make excuses for him. And the scariest part is that people believe him. So how about some American history? Nothing to do with it. I would say maybe five times. Yikes! It's Mr. Carswell, the 
bank president. They have not concluded. Nobody's concluded. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to conclude. Look at this snapshot. Here's a clue to end all clues. I don't want to hear the tape. No reason for me to hear the tape. I'm sure you'll recognize it. And I really hate listening to that person's voice. Let's just say that, too. That I had fast-forwarded enough, and it's a DIY show here, so... A little bit rough on the uptake. Frankly, if we went by this standard, we wouldn't be able to This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 75 of Intercepted. The world watched in horror last weekend as U.S. Border Patrol agents opened fire with tear gas on a group of refugees seeking asylum in the United States. These agents fired rounds across the border into Mexico. Donald Trump claims that many of these refugees are hardened criminals. These are hardened criminals. These are tough, tough people. And we have hardened criminals coming in. People are coming over from Honduras. They have like 5,000 people, Honduras and Guatemala, El Salvador. And some of these people are hard criminals, hardened criminals, not good people. But as with many things Trump spits out of his mouth, he offered no facts to back it up. He just uses the most powerful podium in the world, that of the American president, to slander masses of suffering people looking for refuge. But here's a fact. Among the targets of this assault by U.S. forces were women and children, many of whom fled Honduras. Across the American news media, these refugees are simply referred to as migrants or the caravan. Rarely do we get any context of why they are risking their lives and the lives of their children to flee Honduras. And part of why we don't hear that context is because to really tell this story, you need to talk about the U.S. dirty wars in Central America in the 1980s. You need to talk about the impact of neoliberal economic policies. You need to talk about the catastrophe of climate change caused by the U.S. and other major world powers. You need to know history. The United States has intervened with military forces 12 times in Latin America in this century. Many of these invasions were led by Brigadier General Smedley Butler, in his memoirs, 1933, he says, I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenue in. I helped pacify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests. I helped make Honduras right for American fruit companies. If you know this history, particularly in Honduras, then you know that what we are seeing now is a situation 
where the U.S. set a house on fire, and as the flames have raged, the U.S. is standing against the people trying to flee the fire that Washington set to their home. When you cut through all the propaganda, the generalizations, the lies, that is what we're witnessing now. The United States is trying to stop innocent people from fleeing a raging fire that the U.S. itself started. My fellow Americans, I must speak to you tonight about a mounting danger in Central America that threatens the security of the United States. Throughout the 1980s, the Reagan administration waged a series of dirty wars throughout Central America in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. After the leftist Sandinistas took power in Nicaragua, the U.S. began a program to support a death squad known as the Contras. Neighboring Honduras, which was technically a newly democratic state, was in reality ruled by a right-wing military junta. The forces under the command of General Gustavo Alvarez operated a notorious CIA-backed death squad in Honduras. It was known as Battalion 316. Thousands of people were killed during this period in the name of fighting communism. You can't have communists running free all over the place doing what they want to do. What happens if the United States get attacked by communists or we leave it open to be attacked by communists? What happens then? That U.S. soldier was part of military exercises in the 1980s in Honduras, right near the Nicaraguan border. Honduras was the staging ground for U.S. support for the Contras, and the point man for the Reagan administration was Ambassador John Negroponte. Negroponte cut his teeth working for Henry Kissinger during the Vietnam War. As ambassador to Honduras from 1981 to 1985, Negroponte presided over the second largest embassy in Latin America at the time and the largest CIA station in the world. From that post, Negroponte not only coordinated Washington's covert support for the Contra death squads and the Honduran junta, but he also covered up the crimes of its murderous Battalion 316. During Negroponte's tenure in Honduras, U.S. officials who worked under him said that the State Department human rights reports on the country were drafted to read more like Norway's than anything reflecting the actual reality in Honduras. Negroponte's predecessor in that country, Ambassador Jack Binns, told the New York Times that Negroponte had discouraged reporting to Washington of abductions, torture, and killings by notorious Honduran military units, saying, quote, I think Negroponte was complicit in abuses. I think he tried to put a lid on reporting abuses, and I think he was untruthful to Congress about those activities. Were you aware of this, of the existence of this battalion in your, when you were down there as ambassador? Senator, as I <clears throat> responded in a... Uh, written uh, question uh, with regard to uh, the so-called Battalion uh, 316. My first awareness uh, of the existence of the battalion by that name, and we can get into this because I'm not trying to uh, uh, be fancy with my use of words here now, but uh, my first Negroponte was asked about the death squad in front of the Senate in 2001, during his confirmation hearing for UN ambassador. But I asked uh, the CIA about Battalion 316th and was given uh, a memorandum 
uh, by the agency uh, at that time, which advised me that that battalion was created uh, in the beginning of 1984, either late 1983 or the beginning of 1984, which is uh, well into my uh, tenure uh, in Honduras, and that uh, uh, to the best of uh, the agency's knowledge uh, at that time, uh, no, uh, there had been no substantiation of any human rights uh, systemic human rights violations being carried out uh, by that unit. John Negroponte would later serve in the George W. Bush administration, running operations in Iraq that came to be known as the Salvador Option. Despite Negroponte's bloody history, Hillary Clinton bragged about receiving his endorsement when she ran for president in 2016. John Negroponte, a former veteran diplomat who served under so three Republican administrations as well as the Clinton administration, has endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. Uh, Negroponte wrote this about Hillary Clinton. We'll mm -hmm. put it up on the screen. She will bring to the presidency the skill, experience, and wisdom that is needed in a president and commander-in-chief. Having myself served in numerous diplomatic and national security positions starting in 1960, I am convinced Secretary Clinton has the leadership qualities that far and away qualify her best to be our next president. Among the crimes committed by U.S.-backed Honduran forces during Negroponte's tenure, was the murder of a U.S. Jesuit priest named Father James Guadalupe Carney. Father Carney was a liberation theology revolutionary who spent 18 years living with the campesinos and the poor of Honduras. The U.S.-backed forces waged a smear campaign against Father Carney, who was a World War II veteran, claiming that he was a communist. The most basic need uh, that a man has to fulfill is food. And of course, when a valley like this is, could produce enough food, they say, for all Central America, is, is producing uh, vegetable oil for Castle and Cook Company. I mean, that's a terrible crime. It's a sin. And that's why we Christians nowadays in Latin America, we, we want to change that. We, we rebel against that. Even if they call us communists, even if they kill us, we have to try to do something about it. In 1983, Father Carney was murdered by a U.S.-backed death squad. We still do not know the truth of what happened to him, but there are many sources who say he was captured alive, tortured, and then thrown from a helicopter into the jungle. Here is Democratic Senator Tom Harkin speaking on the Senate floor opposing Negroponte's nomination as Bush's U.N. ambassador in 2001. Mr. Negroponte showed a callous disregard for human rights abuses. Throughout his tenure as U.S. Ambassador to Honduras between 1981 and 1985, uh, during which time I traveled to Honduras, and in fact went out to one of the Contra camps with the ambassador at that time. And uh, quite frankly, in my conversations uh, at that time in Honduras, uh, and with the later revelations of what was going on with Battalion 316 that was supervised and basically trained by our CIA and our military personnel. When a lot of these things came to light, it became clear to me that, that during my trip there that I was misled and, quite frankly, not given the correct information that I sought. 
Secondly, I believe that Mr. Negroponte knowingly misinformed the U.S. State Department about gross human rights violations in Honduras and throughout Central America during the height of the so-called Contra War in Central America in the 1980s. That action, in turn, resulted in the Congress being misled as to the scope and nature of gross human rights violations that were being committed by the Contras and by the Honduran military, and in particular, Battalion 316 in the Honduran military. In a letter to The Economist in 1982, then Ambassador Negroponte wrote, and I quote, it is simply untrue that death squads have made appearances in Honduras. Yet from 1981 to 1984, over 150 people disappeared, including one American priest, Father James Carney, whose body has never been recovered. Father Carney's death is one of thousands that have gone unsolved in Honduras, and the overwhelming majority of those victims were Hondurans. Hundreds more were disappeared, never to be seen again, alive or dead. That country has never recovered from these dirty wars and what the U.S. did in Honduras. Just as the worst of the bloodshed was letting up a decade later, U.S. neoliberal economic policy further ravaged the country and made it one huge maquiladora for major corporations. The president of Honduras says he's the victim of a coup. He says he was brutally kidnapped by soldiers. Manuel Zelaya spoke Sunday from Costa Rica. Zelaya was detained shortly before voting was to begin on a constitutional referendum. Tanks and armored personnel carriers rolled through the streets. Army trucks carrying hundreds of soldiers equipped with metal riot shields surrounded the presidential palace in the capital's center. President Barack Obama is calling for all sides in Honduras to respect democracy and the rule of law. It's not immediately clear who is running the government. During the Obama administration, a military coup overthrew the democratically elected leftist government of Manuel Zelaya. And then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton supported that coup, even bragging that she had devised a way to resolve the crisis that would ensure that the elected president would never return to his post. As she campaigned for president in 2016, Clinton continued to defend her position on Honduras, including under questioning from journalist Juan Gonzalez of Democracy Now! Now, I didn't like the way it looked or the way they did it, but they had a very strong argument that they had followed the Constitution and the legal precedents. And as you know, they really undercut their argument by spiriting him out of the country in his pajamas, where they sent, you know, the military to, you know, take him out of his bed and get him out of the country. So this was, this began as a very, uh, you know, mixed and difficult situation. So our assessment was, we will just make the situation worse by punishing the Honduran people if we declare a coup and we immediately have to stop all aid for uh, the people, but we should slow walk and try to stop anything that the government could take advantage of without calling it a coup. I bring this up because we need to understand that this situation was not just created by Trump. It was created by more than a quarter century of U.S. policy. You could say it goes back even further than that. Trump is basically the thug who has now stepped in late in the game, continued decades of brutal, murderous, inhumane U.S. policy, and is now punishing its victims even further. How did you feel when you saw the images of the women and children running from the tear gas? Well, I do say, why are they there? I mean, I have to start off. First of all, the tear gas is a very minor form of the tear gas itself. 
uh, it's very safe. The ones that were suffering to a certain extent were the people that were putting it out there. Today, Honduras is governed by a U.S.-backed undemocratic leader. Crime and corruption are rampant. Gangs run murderous operations, and poverty is widespread. Remember all of this history when you listen to Donald Trump's racist and xenophobic rhetoric. Remember that the U.S. played a central role over the course of decades in creating the conditions that have caused these desperate people, these families with their children, to flee. Remember this as you watch women and children gassed by U.S. forces. History matters. Context matters. Today, we're going to dig deep into this history with a Honduran professor who has spent her life documenting the role of the U.S. in Honduras. But first, we're going to get the latest from the U.S.-Mexico border from two reporters who have spent extensive time reporting there. I'm joined now by my colleague at The Intercept, Ryan Devereaux. He's been on the Homeland Security beat for the duration of the Trump presidency and has spent a lot of time recently in the frontline state of Arizona. And we're also joined by Melissa Del Bosque. She is a Lannan reporting fellow with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute. She's written about the U.S.-Mexico border since 1998. Her latest piece is for The Intercept. It's called The Occupation. In South Texas, border residents struggle to cope with the latest military surge. Ryan, Melissa, welcome to Intercepted. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Melissa, let's start with you. Um, You've been reporting on the border for years, and now under Trump, we're seeing this very intense, visible militarization of the operations along the border. You have Trump uh, saying that the U.S. military is authorized to use lethal force against people uh, throwing rocks. Because they're throwing rocks viciously and violently. You saw that three days ago, really hurting the military. We're not going to put up with that. They want to throw rocks at our military. Our military fights back. We're going to consider it. I tell them, consider it a rifle. Describe what you've seen as you've been reporting from Texas and elsewhere during this crisis. What I'm seeing is a lot of manufactured crisis, right? Um, a lot of, uh, you know, buildup, razor wire being laid along the river, the Rio Grande, which is the Texas border with Mexico, uh, a lot of troops. They've started this base camp, Donna, in the town of Donna on the Texas border with, you know, tents and thousands of uh, soldiers, uh, lots of helicopters flying around. It, it feels very tense, but also there's nothing happening. You know, I mean, Trump would like to see nothing more than some sort of horrible conflict. Give the context for what happened in um, in Tijuana, Mexico, where you had U.S. Border Patrol officers firing tear gas into this crowd of Central American asylum seekers. Border Patrol has been doing that for a long time. They've also shot into Mexico and actually killed people in Mexico. They've done that at least 10 or 12 times over the last decade, and, and nobody has been prosecuted for that. There was just a trial, actually, for a Border Patrol agent who shot a man in Mexico, a boy, actually, a teenager, and he just got off on that. You know, them them firing tear gas and pepper spray into a crowd, I mean, it's happened before. It's not unusual for Border Patrol to do something like that. And, and they always use rock throwing as an excuse. You know, well, they threw rocks at us, so we had to use 
well, they call it less than lethal force. Our agents were being assaulted. Uh, a large group rushed the area and they were throwing rocks and bottles at um, my men and women, putting them in harm's way as well as uh, other members of uh, the caravan. Ryan, now you, you've been um, traveling back and forth to Arizona for the better part of the last year, these past several months. And I want to ask you about some of the reporting that you've done specifically about potential criminal charges being brought against people who are trying to help migrants, giving them water, shelter, uh, et cetera. But, but first, you really have carved out a beat where you are covering the further militarization of homeland security operations in the United States and also looking at who is influencing the Trump administration on its border policy and its position on ICE. So talk about that bigger picture of what's happening with homeland security and ICE relative to the border under the Trump administration. The way that I sort of look at this and everything that we're experiencing right now is sort of a, a trajectory that began, you can draw the line wherever you want to, but you know, a really instructive place to start is sort of the mid-90s, the Clinton administration, the development of a, a strategy for border enforcement that involved collaboration between the Border Patrol and the Pentagon called Prevention Through Deterrence, where the idea was to move migration flows uh, away from cities, build up sort of security infrastructure around border cities and then move migration flows into the desert. The thinking being that people won't cross the desert, and if they do, they'll die, and that'll send a message. The creation of prevention through deterrence was it was sort of the foundation of what we're talking about now. You have that married with criminalization of immigration crimes, right? So immigration offenses make up a larger share of the federal docket than anything else. That's been a development over the, the last decade and a half or so. So you have in the desert, migrants crossing, dying. You have in the courts along the border, hyper-punitive system. Then after 9-11, you have a lot of these border security agencies get this sort of national security boost, right? So you see Department of Homeland Security agencies like the Border Patrol, like ICE, really adopting a mentality of warriors on the front line, and they get the kind of funding that comes with that, right? You have Customs and Border Protection, the agency that oversees ICE, you know, receiving more funding than, you know, all of the major federal law enforcement agencies, FBI, DEA combined, and, and a mentality that we are warriors guarding the wall, right? And I say that, you know, non-ironically, because the, the Border Patrol has a union, and the Border Patrol union has a podcast, and that podcast, for a long time, they're actually featured Jon Snow from Game of Thrones talking about being a warrior on the wall. I'm the sword in the darkness. I'm the watcher on the walls. I'm the shield that guards the realm of men. Broadcasting live from the southern border, this is The Green Line. This is Donald Trump, and you're listening to The Green Line. Thank you, President-elect Trump. Thank you to all our listeners out there. We are going to make podcasting great again. And if for those who aren't Game of Thrones fans, so, you know the wall is a sort of a defense against an undead army that is uh, threatening to uh, destroy Westeros, right? So it is an idea that we are these uh, elite guards guarding against a horde, an invasion, and that idea, a horde, an invasion of people, is something that we're hearing 
constantly now from the Trump administration. That didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, for the last, you know, several decades, there's been a, a nativist right in Washington D.C. that really operates through a handful of prominent think tanks, influential and powerful think tanks that were all sort of founded by this. Uh, white nationalist eugenicist publisher named John Tanton. So, yes, it's it's people like Stephen Miller. Obviously, everybody knows about Miller, but there, there's a whole sort of network of people who have been agitating for years to take what is already a, a really intense system for, you know, chasing, capturing, detaining, and deporting folks into overdrive. Ryan, you, um, you also have been focusing on a story that hasn't gotten nearly the attention that I, I think a lot of us believe it deserves. How this administration is seeking to prosecute humanitarian volunteers who are, including potentially on felony charges, who are trying to prevent deaths of, uh, of people who cross the border um, as, as migrants. Talk about this effort by the Trump Justice Department to go after people who are trying to prevent deaths in the desert or in uh, rural areas when people are crossing over and trying uh, you know, to get elsewhere in the United States. Southern Arizona has sort of been ground zero for migrant deaths for, for years and years and years um, as a result of prevention through deterrence, which I mentioned earlier. And in response to that, there's this community, a really deep community that kind of began in the 80s with the sanctuary movement when religious leaders were moving hundreds of refugees from Reagan's dirty wars in Central America into the United States. When people started dying in the desert as a result of prevention through deterrence, this community sort of formed. It was built around the idea of putting water in the desert for migrants who are crossing, providing medical aid to people who are crossing. The idea being that no matter no matter what your immigration status, no matter if you're carrying a backpack full of marijuana, no matter what, you don't deserve a death sentence in the desert. And for years, these groups, particularly No More Deaths, which is, is sort of the most well-known of these organizations, has had back-and-forth run with the state under the Trump administration, particularly under now former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, the government has been cracking down on, on these groups with the real heavy hand. So in January of 2017, uh, Nordest released a report that documented the Border Patrol's destruction of thousands of gallons of uh, water in the desert that No More Deaths had put out. Hours later that day, one of No More Deaths' longstanding volunteers who had sort of led an effort to search for bodies in one of the most remote areas in Arizona was arrested. Uh, he was found at a sort of nerve center for humanitarian aid work in the desert, along with two undocumented men. He was charged with uh, two counts of harboring, and later a conspiracy charge was added. Federal crimes, felonies. He faces a maximum of 20 years in prison. So Scott Warren's case, this volunteer facing these felony charges, is is one of several cases involving humanitarian aid volunteers in southern Arizona. He's one of uh, nine volunteers who are also facing charges for leaving water in uh, on federal lands for migrants. His, some of his fellow volunteers, they're all facing a year in prison for what the government has termed littering. You talk to people who are really involved in dealing with the humanitarian crisis on the border in southern Arizona, dealing with migrant deaths, they're critical. They find bodies. They provide water to people who are on the verge of death. I was out there in August of this year with one of these uh, immigrant-led search and recovery groups. It was 120 degrees out. These guys were combing through the mountains 
trying to find the remains of a young man who had went missing years ago. They don't get paid money to do this work. They're responding to a crisis that the government created. And now what we're seeing is the Department of Justice attacking them uh, with the full force of the law. Trials are supposed to begin at the beginning of the next year. And I think it'll be really critical for, for folks to pay attention to what happens here, because what we're seeing is the administration with ICE deporting lots and lots of folks from the interior of the country now who've been living in the United States for years. Uh, we're already seeing these folks trying to get back to the lives that they've built here. They're going to be trying to cross a border that maybe they crossed 20 years ago that was a lot different. It's much, much more securitized now. Chances that deaths are going to increase is high. Yeah, and I, w- I would also recommend that people watch the 2014 film, uh, Who is Diane Cristal, by director uh, Mark Silver, where you have the actor Gail Garcia Bernal retracing the steps of one man whose body was found dead in the Arizona desert. At the time that, that Diane Cristal came in, uh, we were knee-deep in border crosser deaths at that point in time already. With a body found in the desert, we were closely with the consulate, trying to determine uh, identification if they're Mexican nationals uh, from Guatemala, from Honduras. And I just I want to add something on that because it brings to mind one of the one of the main protagonists in that film uh, is it works at an organization called Calibri that does a lot of work repatriating the remains of uh, of migrants. And Calibri also has been targeted in this, or at least felt the effects of this crackdown in southern Arizona, with a, a senior border patrol agent literally telling one of the co-founders of the organization after a, a no more desk camp was raided that they messed with the wrong guy and we're coming for them now. So it, it's being felt across the board in the humanitarian aid community in Arizona. Melissa, you've you've covered the border under both the Obama administration and now the Trump administration. You've been doing this work for, for a long time. Can you explain for people what are the most significant changes that you've seen in U.S. policy from Obama to Trump? You know, there, of all these terrible policies that were going on during the first term of uh, Obama's presidency is with ICE, you know, going in and uh, deporting people. I mean, they called him deporter in chief. And it was true. I mean, he's more people have been deported under Obama than than Trump. Of course, Trump's only, you know, this is his first term. Um, but, you know, because of that grassroots movement and all the pushing back and all of the lawsuits that were filed and won, Obama's second term was better for immigrants in the border. We saw, you know, prosecutorial discretion that ICE had, so they didn't have to, you know, they were only going to deport people who had criminal records. People were not being prosecuted for helping people in the desert, you know, by putting out water and so forth. And, you know, dreamers were allowed to stay and study. So there were a lot of real gains that were made And the sad thing is, when Trump came into office, it seems like so much of that was lost, all of that organizing and all of that, that work. I mean, the organizations are still there. They're still, they're still fighting, but there's just so much to fight against now. And so much is, there's so much chaos and so much changing from day to day. And then, you know, you see something like the zero tolerance policy, which is a very extreme form of prevention through deterrence. Uh, where they're just physically separating families at the border, which, you know, we were all horrified by it. At least under Obama, you felt like you could appeal to him and his administration for some sort of justice or some sort of mercy, but you don't have that sense at all under this administration. And even in my in my reporting 
it's very different now when I go to interview people who are undocumented or the level of fear I've never seen before. And under Obama, when I was doing stories, people had hope. They thought, well, I want to get my message out. I want people to know about what my life is like as an undocumented person. I've lived here for 30 years. All my kids are U.S. citizens. There was some hope that there would be some change, that there would be some immigration reform. But now there's just like no hope. You know, people are like, why should I even talk to you? It's not going to do any good. And all I do is risk some authority finding out that I'm here. So the level of fear is just pretty astronomical. Um, Ryan, on, on November 9th, Trump signed this presidential proclamation banning migrants from seeking asylum or officially applying for asylum outside of of official ports of entry and you know across the board uh, legal experts on this are saying that it's you know basically violates the immigration and and nationality act now there's a a legal fight there as there has been with the forced separation policy but what is the significance of Trump changing that or seeking to change that policy for, for people seeking asylum I look at that decision sort of in the context of this broader assault on asylum as a means of protection for vulnerable populations uh, attempting to come to the United States that we've seen playing out from day one. This administration, sort of with this collection of nativist influencers, has poked holes or attempted to poke holes in in asylum all over the place. I mean, it's really been remarkable and striking. You, you talk to immigration attorneys who've been doing this work for a long time, and they'll point out some tweak, some small tweak that would go unnoticed by the general public that is having huge impacts. Uh, you know, in in actually being able to provide protections for for folks who are coming here attempting to exercise their right under domestic and international law for protection. I think that you can then look at that attack on asylum in an even broader context, which is how the Trump administration is part of this rise of sort of far-right authoritarian governments that we're seeing around the world. I think it's important to keep in mind that as a country, we're not alone here. Criminalizing humanitarian aid work, politicizing fear of migrants wiping out, uh, you know, a dominant white Western culture. We're seeing that all over the place uh, across the world. It's resonating. It's being weaponized. uh, So we're not alone. So I think that it's, it's just important to keep that in mind when we're talking about all of these issues. What should people be looking at in the coming weeks and months on the border? It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, right now, you know, they're they're sending more soldiers to the California-Mexico border. And then we have a new Mexican president coming in on December 1st. So that's going to be very interesting, too, with the new president in Mexico and the decisions he's going to make about whether they're going to hold... Uh, asylum seekers in Mexico while they wait to, you know, make a claim in the United States. I don't really see that working. I don't know how that's going to work. So, yeah, it, it, things are going to are really going to change, I think, in the next week when we see the new president come in in Mexico and just see what kind of decision they can uh, come to between the two countries about what they're going to do. You know, and Ryan, finally, um, a lot of people, including liberals and others, say, oh, well, you know, General Mattis is a, uh, you know, a very respected military general with a storied uh, career. He's one of the adults in the room. But uh, let's let's be real here. Uh, If you go back and look at General Mattis's uh, career, he has been involved as the commander in several 
mass killing operations, including of large numbers of civilians, including civilians who were fleeing uh, the scene of violence in their home countries, I'm referring specifically to Iraq. And I, I'm, I'm concerned, you know, when, when, when we hear pundits say, these are professional soldiers in the U.S. military, they would never open fire on civilians. The entire story of the U.S. military is riddled with stories of firing on civilians and killing civilians. I, I actually think you have this lethal cocktail of a known killer, including of civilians like Mattis, uh, a racist, xenophobic administration that has been infiltrated intentionally by nativist right-wingers. I, I, I really do fear that uh, we could see not just the dribble of killing here, killing there, but that we could actually see a massacre. And I think there are people within the Trump world that would want that. Yeah, a lot of folks, I think, want to look at what happened right in there in the run-up to the midterms, uh, the deployment of the troops, and say, you know, that was just a political stunt. And, and true, it was a political stunt, but it was also more than that. The the president of the United States managed to elevate a white nationalist narrative about an invasion of brown people coming into the United States, then mobilized thousands of active service members in an operation that was called Faithful Patriot. I, Without much interference, the same administration that rammed through a policy of forcibly separating thousands of children from their parents and then just sort of throwing them into the black hole of the system. My point is, I don't think we've seen a, a sort of limit on what they are willing to try. And we've also seen them manage to quickly push through really sweeping and extreme actions on the border in the name of what they call border security. So, yeah, I think that there is real reason to be concerned about all of these things coming to a head in the coming weeks and months. Ryan Devereaux, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Melissa Del Bosque, thank you very much for your excellent work and for joining us here on Intercepted. Sure. Thanks for having me. Ryan Devereaux is a reporter for The Intercept. Make sure to check out all of his reporting on the war against immigrants at TheIntercept.com. And Melissa Del Bosque, she is a Lannan Reporting Fellow with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute. Her latest piece for The Intercept is called The Occupation. For more on the history and context of why so many Hondurans are fleeing their country and seeking asylum in the U.S. and elsewhere, I'm joined now by Suyapa Portillo Vieda. She is Associate Professor of Chicanx and Latinx Transnational Studies at Pitzer College in California. She's originally from Honduras and continues to work and research in that country. Suyapa, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. I want to begin when this group of people that are seeking to apply for asylum in the United States are talked about in the broader news media. They're generally referred to as the caravan or the migrants. But in fact, many of them, the majority of them, are fleeing Honduras. Why are they leaving Honduras? 
Well, people are leaving Honduras for a lot of reasons. I think one reason is sort of the historical foreign policy of the U.S. in Honduras, right? Um, for over 50 years, the U.S. has been sort of manipulating and engaging in Central America at different levels, right? Military, diplomatic. And one clear example is the 2009 coup. This is how the street looked earlier in the week, as police clashed with hundreds of protesters, angered by the military overthrow of President Manuel Zelaya. Mr. Zelaya was rousted out of his bedroom in the presidential palace by Honduran soldiers and sent into exile on orders of the country's Supreme Court. The court says it took the action because the president wanted to amend laws to guarantee him another term. But Mr. Zelaya told the U.N. that he was promoting change within Honduras, change that he says is opposed by the Honduran elite. That coup has generated so much instability, both politically, economic. When you have a weak militaristic government like Juan Orlando's government, you're also going to have a strong narco state. And post the coup d'etat, over 900 concessions were heard and granted by the Honduran government to outside powers, um, you know, China, Canada, the U.S., and companies in those countries funded by sort of IMF and World Bank, right? So local elite are able to get these loans from international banks in Europe and the U.S. and then collude with companies to build things like you know, hydroelectric dams or mining, the arable land that people would use for subsistence farming, for instance, they're being displaced from this land or the rivers are being contaminated. So people are fleeing for that reason, right? The other reason that most people don't think of, or maybe they forgot, is sort of the neoliberal era of the 90s. Most people look at that era and think of Hurricane Mitch as the reason why people come. And that is one reason, right? There was such weak infrastructure in the country that it devastated, you know, most of San Pedro Sula, the western part of Honduras, and the southern part of Honduras. In late October 1998, a tropical storm in the southwest Caribbean suddenly intensified into one of the strongest hurricanes this century. And it hovered over Honduras for four days. In just 12 hours, it dumped two feet of rain. Honduras had borne the brunt of the storm with at least 7,000 dead and 600,000 homeless. But in reality, we're looking at 20 years after NAFTA and free trade agreements are just failing most people at this point, right? People have to migrate because they're not making ends meet. If you're a young woman, you start working in a maquila from age 15. By age 30, 35, that's it. There's no more work for you because that's when ailments start to happen. That's where sort of occupational health and hazards pop up, right? As women get older, women end up needing to migrate and many times have, you know, four or five children to feed. These women are having to bring their kids. If they leave their kids, they can leave them with an aunt or with a grandparent and sometimes with a neighbor but then a host of all kinds of things can happen to them, right? Uh, from sexual abuse to like, they may not be getting the money that the parents are sending. So instead of putting the kids through this separation, many times women make the choice to bring them with them. As you well know, if you go back even further into the 1980s, when John Negroponte was the U.S. ambassador to Honduras, Honduras was a major staging ground 
for the U.S.-backed Contra death squads in Nicaragua. You also had uh, the Honduran paramilitary-slash-military death squad, Battalion 316, that was murderous. And you had the United States State Department whitewashing the human rights situation in Honduras itself when John Rangrupante was running the U.S. operations there. It was an impressive show of force as U.S. paratroopers filled the skies over central Honduras. The 800 infantrymen hit the ground running, fully aware of the circumstances that brought them here and deadly serious about carrying out their mission. I'm here to train. I'm here to do what they told me to do. And that is to practice the maneuvers of war. The troops are pumped up proud to carry out their commander-in-chief's orders. Four horsemen, forever, so is Ronald Reagan. The president's representative... Talk about how the dirty wars in Central America and in Honduras and the U.S. presence there in the 1980s created some of the conditions that we now see causing or continuing to support this notion that people feel like they need to flee. Honduras has been used as sort of an airport for U.S. State Department for military. Honduras has one of the largest air base in the region, Sotocano Air Base. And part of it is geopolitical location, right? Honduras is one hour from Cuba by plane, immediately next to Nicaragua and El Salvador, which in the 80s were had active guerrillas, right, and were fighting and winning, right? So Nicaragua won in 1979 and was able to take power. And this is important geopolitically for the United States to sort of, you know, at this point during the Reagan years was the Red Scare, right, and the fear that communism was going to spread throughout the region, that they were connected with the Soviet Soviet Union or Cuba, but also this emerging drug war. And so Honduras is what many people say, like this backyard, right, for the United States where they can sort of bring and deposit and train people. There's regions in Honduras where revolutionary leaders from Nicaragua or El Salvador were tortured, or even from Honduras. There's about 2,000 students were disappeared during the period, and oftentimes, like you said, covered up. Honduras has always been sort of the U.S. lackeys, right? I'm not talking about the Honduran people. I'm talking about Honduran government and Honduran poor leaders, right? What happens in Honduras is that from 1962 to 1980, there were military leaders passed on leadership throughout that region. Elections didn't happen, and it was sort of a pacted process until 1980. The candidate that most people wanted to win was in Suazo Cordova, was actually Modesto Rodas Alvarado, who was a progressive candidate. He was a Liberal Party member, and he mysteriously dies. It's unclear how he died. Some people say he was poisoned. Some people say it was health care. And then Suazo Cordova emerges as someone that's going to be a lackey to U.S., uh, the U.S. Embassy and the U.S. State Department. Honduras is a good and valued friend and partner of the United States. President Suazo's leadership has returned Honduras to democracy, and his government has embarked on a prompt and courageous effort to return the country to economic health. Under his watch, 2,000 students were killed. Many, many more had to flee the country into Mexico and other places to be exiled. And most of the 
guerrilla movements that were formed in Honduras were basically squashed, right, through uh, both surveillance and also covert operations as well as just random violence. So growing up in Honduras during this period in the 70s, a period of dictatorship, you know, I remember transit between cities was really difficult. So you would go from one city to another and it was a two-hour drive that would take four to six hours because military stopped you, the police stopped you, the military police stopped you right? So you had to get off the bus and everybody was searched. And so we're seeing that era sort of return now to Honduras. So particularly post the second election of Juan Orlando Hernandez, which was fraudulent, right? We're all clear that he didn't win these elections, but that they were rigged. People started to protest. And they weren't just Libre party members, the opposition party. There were multiple parties who were opposing what they were seeing happening back in November of 2017. And they were received with live bullets. And this is sort of a return to the 1980s, right? We hadn't seen, for example the military police in the streets as they are now since the 1980s. And we hadn't seen live bullets be sprayed onto peaceful protesters. I think for this generation of people that are protesting, right, the, the generation of the coup d'etat, the people that whose consciousness grew out of the coup d'etat, It's absolutely shocking what's happening, right? I was able to actually be in Honduras for the past eight months, and I was able to witness some of these casings that were left by the police, right? Excessive tear gassing. So now young people who are engaged in sort of the civil process of voting, who feel betrayed by what happened in November of 2017, are now fleeing for their lives because the police is hunting them down, entering their homes, throwing tear gas inside their homes, throwing them in jail one or two years uh, without really like posting charges, right? People are waiting one or two years in jail trying to, to figure out what they're being charged with. There's complete chaos. And I think when Orlando Hernandez has sort of demonstrated that he doesn't have a handle on what's going on. There's complete ingovernability in Honduras at this point, just rampant corruption and People are fleeing that. So what happens when all of that is going on in the government and people are protesting? What happens is uh, people can't work, right? The majority of the population, about 70% of Hondurans, live in poverty. About 60% live in extreme poverty, mostly in the countryside. And so if there's complete mayhem in the country, the economy is not growing because of all of the militarism and the coup has generated just complete chaos. People are not able to survive. Of course, I'm sure you're aware Hillary Clinton just recently said the following, quote, I think Europe needs to get a handle on migration because that is what lit the flame. And she went on and said, we're not going to be able to continue to provide refuge and support, talking about Angela Merkel of Germany, because if we don't deal with the migration issue, it will continue to roil the body politic. So you have that statement from Hillary Clinton, and then it was echoed by John Kerry, who, who also was uh, a secretary of state under Obama. And you have everyone acting horrified, and I think rightly so, at the way that Trump has been talking about this issue, now talking about maybe permanently closing the border, deploying the U.S. military, having forces that are firing tear gas at women and children. 
But let's talk real here for a moment. The beginning of this part of the story of Honduras really began with the U.S. support for the coup against Manuel Zelaya. Talk about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and their roles, both public positions and privately what we know about their actions in supporting the coup that took place in 2009 and radically destabilized Honduras. Well, you know, President Obama had every opportunity to deal with migration, quote unquote, before the flame was lit. Barack Obama campaigned on immigration reform and giving some amnesty to the community. And people responded by voting him in. So he had every opportunity for eight years to change the course of what was going to happen with over 11 million people who are undocumented. Many of them are Hondurans, you know. So that's one problem. He became actually what people now refer to as the deporter-in-chief. He deported more people than any other president in history. He chose to quote-unquote, deport criminals. But that's not what we saw on the ground. In fact, the people that were being deported were not criminals at all. They were actually people that had a deportation order, for instance, may not have shown up to a meeting. They weren't necessarily people with criminal offenses. They also started to criminalize immigrants, right? So, for example, crossing the border is a misdemeanor. Crossing the border is an actual crime in the books, in the penal code. If people cross a second time, then they're committing a felony. And they have to sort of pay for that crime and then face deportation court. So when they go to deportation court after being categorized a felon, clearly those are criminals. Do you see the loophole here? So so people that are not necessarily criminals, that are in good standing in society, that are good citizens, but may not have understood how the paperwork functioned or may not have understood that crossing the border after being deported was going to land them in this situation all of a sudden are in this situation. So President Obama had every opportunity. You know, part of the the discussion with what's happening in Central America is that Mel Celaya was engaging with Hugo Chavez and with Fidel Castro at the time they were both still alive and trying to get Honduras entered into the Bolivarian Project for the Americas, right, which was sort of an alternative to the free trade agreements in a way in which Honduras could sort of emerge from this darkness that it's in economically and politically. So I think that that was threatening, not necessarily to the U.S. State Department at first, but to the elite in Honduras, right, who have allegiances to the United States more to the, than their own country. So they saw this as dangerous for them. And I think that when they felt their pockets being touched by this, that was problematic. Also, during this period, all the Latin American countries were pushing for Cuba to be admitted into the OAS. And I think that that meeting happened in Honduras where Hillary Clinton was present and everybody was pressuring for Cuba to enter the Organization of American States. And that became sort of an important moment, right? I believe that that meeting so angered Hillary Clinton that she definitely, six months later, let Honduras know that staging was inappropriate. Why? Because in Honduras, the U.S. State Department has been able to do whatever they want. Honduras has been their backyard. They've been able to manage leaders, to put leaders, to put down strikes. Everything you can think of has happened in Honduras, including the training of 
officials for the Bay of Pigs, the training of the military that invaded Guatemala in 1954 to depose Arbenz Guzman, the interrogation of revolutionary leaders, the disappearance, the torture, the training of the contra-revolutionaries in the 1980s. I mean, the U.S. has been able to do whatever they want in Honduras. And all of a sudden, when Honduras enters the Bolivarian Project for the Americas, Honduran leaders are pausing. I think it's also important to point out that in 2014, I believe it was, Hillary Clinton wrote a review for the Washington Post of the book by infamous war criminal Henry Kissinger, who also is a close friend of Hillary Clinton's and Republicans and Democrats alike, the elite. But she writes this glowing hagiography to Henry Kissinger in the Washington Post and then defends her actions in the aftermath of the coup in Honduras, saying that she had had a plan with other diplomats in the region around Honduras on how to, quote, restore order in the country that would render illegitimate the question of whether Zelaya should return to power. I mean, I I just think it's extremely telling that she make finally admits this, albeit with milquetoast language, in an article for The Washington Post praising Henry Kissinger. And if people remember Henry Kissinger, the orchestrator of Operation Condor in South America, thousands and thousands of young people, college students disappeared, labor organizers, women, revolutionary leaders, and possibly has been engaged throughout not just the Americas, but the world in wars, right, in bringing down communism and this very elusive communism, right? It's unclear what they mean by communism, who are these people, because the people that I've been interviewing on the ground for my own research are working class people who really just want to make decent wages, who want to have a union so that they have say on their medical care, who want to engage their society by voting. And if their vote is not respected, they want to be able to protest and, you know, for demanding and protecting their land, right? Not letting any corporation come in and, you know, destroy the rivers and natural resources. These are actually, you know, working people who need to have justice and who need to have basic survival. So, I mean, one thing I haven't mentioned is sort of the war on drugs, the DEA. Um, In 2011, the DEA shot and killed two pregnant women in La Mosquitia, which is a region close to Nicaragua. DEA agents from the United States, these are U.S. citizens, thought that they were narco-traffickers and killed them. And to this day, those families haven't found any justice. These people have not been brought to trial, right? So the U.S. is able to exist in Honduras almost with unparalleled power, right? They're able to decide who's president, who dies, who lives. And so that's why it's so ironic to see their comments now on this migrant refugee caravan, which we Central American scholars do call refugees because they are actually fleeing a failed state. They're being persecuted. Yes, there's narco traffickers. Yes, there's narco menudeo. There's gang members, you know, but they exist within a failed state. And that's why they're thriving there. I think what's interesting about Hillary Clinton is 
One, nobody wanted Trump, right? But I think for Central Americans, they also didn't want Hillary because they saw right through her, right? She was going to be more interested in in Latin America, be sort of the new era Kissinger, if you will, be engaged in her idea of democracy, which is not participatory democracy, which doesn't incorporate young people, and which clearly doesn't even care about immigrants. In fact, I think when she was campaigning, She actually said that kids in 2014 should be deported. Just because your child gets across the border, that doesn't mean the child gets to stay. So we don't want to send a message that is contrary to uh, our laws or will encourage more children to make that dangerous journey. And I think for Central American voters and for Latino voters, that was really a wrong move for her. I wanted to uh, ask you about Trump sending U.S. military forces to the border. And if you have the larger group of people make it to the border, your concerns about what could happen? First of all, we're not going to stop this migration of refugees. I think that that is sort of poor analysis from the State Department on this issue. We're not going to stop it until we deal with the root causes of this migration, which is all that we've been talking about, right? You know, they're engaging in covert activities that are actually displacing people and supporting corporations which are displacing people. So people are not going to stop coming just because the U.S. president or the vice president sends a tweet about it. The other thing is that I actually am surprised that the Mexicans have allowed for the U.S. military to be there. You know, let's look back at 1848, right? Let's look back at the ways in which the U.S. has infringed on Mexico's sovereignty. What I see here is an infringement on Mexico's sovereignty. The fact that riot police from the U.S. shot into Mexican territory, that's a sovereignty issue right there. And any president of any country needs to address that. And they've had an opportunity to address. So I think Enrique Peña Nieto right now hasn't been able to address it because he's on his way out. For the new president, AMLO, who takes over December 1st, this is going to be a key defining moment of his presidency. This is what history has put in front of him. Is he going to comply? Is he going to concede? Is he going to stand up? And what is that going to look like? And lastly, you know, tear gassing, unarmed women and children, youth, is just deplorable. It's, first of all, a violation of international rights under the Refugee Convention of 1961. People have a right to ask for asylum. This is not something that's up for grabs. I think that we've seen sort of the ignorance of the Trump administration over and over and over. This is a big oversight. This is an international oversight. We are beholden to these international conventions and we must allow and review these asylum policies at the very least, right? So if people come to our borders and seek asylum, they have a right to do that. They have a right to do that in any country at any time. The other thing is that to see these people as refugees, we have to get international recognition for the genocide that happened in Central America in the 1980s, right? So Guatemalans should be refugees because 200,000 Guatemalans were killed since 1954 and throughout the period of the 1980s. Many of them, the majority, were Mayan of Mayan descent. 80,000 uh, murdered in El Salvador, over 20,000 in, in Nicaragua in that prolonged war of the 1980s, 2,000 murders of students in Honduras. And, you know, we can go down the list of what's happened 
happening since the coup d'etat, right? We've seen over 500 murders of people, including leaders like Berta Cáceres, right, you know, who ran for president. These are the conditions in which they're migrating, and they should be considered refugees for this. But it doesn't make sense for the United States to consider them refugees because it would implicate itself in the murders of the 1980s and the 1990s and currently in Honduras. So this is political. And I think that they're perceiving Central American women and children as weak, as people that don't have power, as people that can be manipulated. So this is why I think international organizations need to step in. People are not going to stop coming just because you tell them not to come. People come as a direct response to hunger, to violence, to corruption, to being displaced from their land. I mean, we really need work on refugee laws and utilizing these international conventions. Well, we're going to leave it there. Professor Suyapa Portillo-Vieda, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Suyapa Portillo-Vieda is originally from Honduras. She is Associate Professor of Chicanx and Latinx Transnational Studies at Pitzer College in California. record, I do not work for any government or intelligence agency, directly or as a contractor, and I never have. My viewpoint is entirely my own. Income inequality is one of the defining issues of our time. It affects all of us, the world over. Still, questions remain. Why? And why now? The Panama Papers provide a compelling answer to these questions. Massive, pervasive corruption. It's not a coincidence that the answers come from a law firm. Mossack Fonseca used its influence to write and bend laws worldwide to favor the interest of criminals over a period of decades. Those words are from... All right, and welcome back to the Weekly Review. I was playing a podcast from The Intercept that folks can find online in full, Killing Asylum, How Decades of U.S. Policy Ravaged Central America. And that was posted on The Intercept on November 28th, 2018, and also dealt with what's happened uh, around in Mexico as well. So I wanted to, to share that. And yeah, there's a lot more on that show, and also wanted to... Uh, cut off here so I could go into some other stories as well. Also, the Amazon has been set on fire. Uh, Bolsonaro, who's the fascist leader of Brazil, as responsible. So that's happening. <sighs> David Koch died, though, so that's something in... For folks, he's a billionaire who has sponsored climate change denial over the years, as well as a lot of right-wing think tanks. And uh, there's a book called Dark Money by Jane Mayer that goes into the Koch brothers' history and how they have... A lot of the things we're experiencing today in the U.S. has been due to the Koch brothers and other wealthy people financing right-wing politicians. So it's all connected, and it's just... Not ironic at all, though, that uh, as the Amazon burns and there are folks who live in the Amazon and their lives are threatened and people's lives around Earth are threatened, 
that one person who has pushed forward the narrative that climate change isn't real uh, won't be around to experience the human's decay on this planet. Wow. Didn't mean to bring it down, but, you know, just talking about what's happening, what's going on. Do you want to do, I mentioned that I would share more information about the protests that are happening outside ICE headquarters every day in August from noon to 1 p.m. at 630 Sansom Street. If you'd like more info, go to Facebook and go to tinyurl.com forward slash month of momentum. And there's a list of all the groups that will be there. And there's also, we've got flyers that have a lot of other information about ways that folks can help out if you can't attend in person. Um, so in addition to protesting, you can donate to bail funds. You can host, uh, host an asylum seeker or refugee in your home. You can hold local officials accountable, support organizations that work directly with immigrants. You can join a rapid response network, donate air miles, um, explore how we got here. And I hope I was able to provide some of that information a little bit today with the information about the U.S.'s role in Central America. Uh, you can also call on Congress if you like uh, harassing these Folks, ugh, blech. That's uh, another way. So, and you can also join the campaign to hashtag defund hate and fund communities, not cages, at detentionwatchnetwork.org forward slash defund hate. So, there's a lot of ways that folks can participate and show up. Oh, so, I think I might end a little bit early. I did want to play a little bit from the other podcast. It's not a podcast, but it's a video that's uh, the the rise of surveillance capitalism and it's a long video it's about an hour and 44 minutes so i did want to i just i'll probably just start playing the first part of it and then i'll i'll wrap up and you can find this if you go onto youtube it's posted by the intercept and it was streamed live on march 1st 2019 the rise of surveillance capitalism Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, my name is Betsy Reed. I'm editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And I am honored and thrilled to be bringing you this event tonight. We were overwhelmed with the immediate response to it um, and not surprised given the spectacular lineup and the, timely, the incredible urgency and timeliness of the topic, but still heartened that there's so much interest out there um, in it. So, the Intercept was founded in part as a platform for reporting on the disclosures of NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. These were stories, of course, that shook the world, revealing the extent of government surveillance of our most intimate lives and the terrifying capacity that had developed like under our noses without our knowledge. Um, and it was the insidious alliance of government and industry in constructing the new surveillance state that was one of the most chilling revelations of the Snowden archive. Today, we're still, at The Intercept, we're still obsessed with this sort of steady drip of alarming news about encroachments on privacy. And we have a special focus on the ways the tech giants are winnowing into our private lives while disguising their agenda in this Orwellian fashion, using the benevolent, grandiose language of wanting only to make our lives better. This is an actual quote from one Silicon Valley startup guide. They want to augment the human condition for a huge number of people in a meaningful way. So 
you know, we believe it's very vital to report on, you know, the latest news about Facebook or Google and the way they're profiting from their ability to predict our behavior. But we also recognize that it's not enough and that at a moment like this, we really need to appreciate the magnitude of the changes that are going on around us. Um, we don't want to be like the per proverbial frog that is steeped in water, gradually getting warmer and not realizing that it's reached the boiling point. So this is where Shoshana Zuboff comes in. We're here tonight to discuss her, I think it's fair to say, magisterial new work, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. I'll leave it to Shoshana and Naomi to show you how brilliant and revelatory this book is, but I want to tell you that it's really worth grabbing a copy for yourself if you haven't already, and several friends, because it's not only gorgeously written, but this will actually augment the human condition for a huge number of people in a meaningful way, if you read it. <laughs> Shoshana is the Charles Edward Wilson Professor Emerita at Harvard Business, Business School and the author of the highly influential book, In the Age of the Smart Machine, The Future of Work and Power. <clears throat> Speaking with Shoshana tonight and introducing her is the Intercepts columnist and senior correspondent Naomi Klein. Naomi is the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair of Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers. Her most recent book is The Battle for Paradise, which was in, based in part on her reporting for The Intercept about Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. She's also, of course, the author of many best-selling books, including The Shock Doctrine, No Logo, and This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. So Naomi first talked about the idea for this event quite recently, so I'm grateful for everyone at The Intercept that pulled it off to bring it to you tonight, and to the Internet Society, which stepped up to sponsor the live stream and to bring it to, uh, hopefully, thousands more people. From the moment we began discussing it, I was struck by how perfect it would be to have these two truly great minds in a live dialogue, precisely because of their extremely rare ability to zoom out and see the big patterns that it's so easy to miss so that we can better understand and resist the forces that are constraining our ability to control our own lives and our future and the future of this society and the planet. So I'm thrilled that we're about to see them together in action. Over to you, Naomi. Hi. Hey, everybody. Wow, so great to be with you. So good to be with you. Thank you, Betsy, the entire amazing team at The Intercept, and all of you for being here tonight. Here's the plan. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff is going to come up here, and she's going to speak for about 20 minutes about the book. Now, as some of you have noticed, and um, we, I already uh, met somebody who had the very bright idea of just bringing the cover of the book to get signed. Um, this is not a short book. Uh, so Shoshana is barely going to have time to scratch the surface. And by the way, that is not a diss. I write doorstoppers as well. Sometimes there's a reason. Um, so after, after that, um, I'm going to come 
back on stage and interview uh, Professor Zuboff so that she can go into more depth and she'll be able to do in that short overview. And as I'm asking questions, some of you will undoubtedly be raging at all of the critical questions that I am failing to ask about. And that's good because after we finish up, there's going to be a mic in the aisle and you will have your chance. And after that, um, there will also be a chance to have your books or your book covers signed on stage um, by Professor Zuboff. So as Betsy said, this is an extraordinary book, and it comes just in the nick of time, while there is still a small window to resist the dangerous trends that it drags into the light. I read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism about four months ago, before the official release, um, because I'm one of the blurbers on the back. And being an early reader was a joy and a privilege. It meant that I had. Um, time to think about it, process it, put it on my, the reading list for my course. But it was incredibly annoying for all of the people I live and work with. Because for several months, all I could do was harangue them about how they simply had to read this book um, in order to have informed conversations about anything. But of course, they couldn't read the book, and I sure as hell wasn't going to lend them my copy. So I know this sounds a tad hyperbolic, but this is the kind of book that has become very rare in our culture, because it is the kind of book that takes time. Time to research, time to think, time to structure, and time to carefully write. And that means time out of the constant chatter that makes up the data flows that are the raw inputs of the new economy that this book so chillingly documents. The age of surveillance capitalism was seven years in the making and many more years in developing an intellectual framework in which to place that research. So the main thing that I want to stress tonight is that although this is a book about a business model forged by the tech sector, it is not a tech book. It is a book about us, our society, our democracy, our freedoms, our sense of self, and our futures. It would have been enough if Professor Zuboff had simply mapped this new landscape for us and told us how it emerged. And she does both of those things in tremendous depth and with amazing lucidity of thought and prose. But she does more than that. She also wrestles with these thornier philosophical questions of autonomy and selfhood and what it means for humans to lose access to knowledge about how our world works, the most crucial tool of self-determination. It's a very fortunate thing when a book of this caliber arrives at the precise historical moment when the public is ready to receive it. And I do believe that we are in a moment like that. The signs of a new people's rebellion against the totalizing power of big tech are all around us. More and more people are questioning the impact of social media on their mental health, well-being, labor, and leisure. And since 2006 and the, 2016 and the Cambridge Analytica revelations, we are wrestling with what it means for democracy. 
We see the new mood of resistance inside tech, tech companies and on the streets outside. We see it in a wave of tech worker organizing from warehouses uh, of Amazon to workers at a very high level organizing to refuse to build uh, the technology of weaponized surveillance. For instance, um, the technology that would enable companies to work with the Pentagon to improve their targeting of drone strikes. And I think of enormous significance is the fact that this past November, 20,000 Google employees from Singapore to Dublin stunned the world by walking off the job en masse in the Google, workout, in the Google walkout, which was sparked by sexual harassment but involved many of these other issues around workplace rights and democracy. And it's often not mentioned that in the historic West Virginia teacher strike, the one that happened last year and inspired this wave of teacher organizing that we're still in the midst of, the issue was not only a lack of funding for public schools, though it was certainly that. Those teachers also went on strike over surveillance capitalism. The fact, the fact that they were being told to download an app uh, to their phones um, that would measure how many steps they took and that would impact the salaries that they were able to take home. And they drew a line and they said no. And there are many more examples of people drawing these kinds of lines. But we are gathered here in New York City, the city that dared to stand up to Amazon and say no. <laughs> mm. No, we will not hand you billions of dollars in tax breaks so that you can further gentrify our city, continue to exploit workers, and collaborate with ICE in its machinery of deportation. And Shoshana and I are going to talk about that fateful decision. Friends, we are in a moment, one that was waiting for its lexicon, waiting for its map, and it has arrived. Please join me in thanking Professor Zuboff for her many years of careful and tenacious labor and in welcoming her to the stage tonight. Thank you. on. Thank you so much. Couldn't be more grateful to see you all out here this evening. Friday night, <laughs> party night, and you're here with us. So, <laughs> well, there's always the after party. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. You know, I want to start out by um, just asking you a question. I want to hear a little bit about what brought you to this event tonight and then hopefully reflect on that together for just a moment. Then I'm gonna shout out some headlines, just some, uh, some of the, the top line ideas that come from the book that we'll be able to dig in in more detail with Naomi. And then if there's time, I'm hoping to read you a couple of paragraphs from the book that I'm, uh, I'm kind of fond of and, and I thought I'd really like to share with you tonight. So, let me start out by asking you a question. First of all, I need a scribe. I need a volunteer to be a scribe. Is there anyone who has a pencil and paper handy where they could be a scribe for me? Come on, baby, don't be shy. Oh, perfect, front row and everything. Okay, you are elected. What is your name, sir? David, thank you so much. All right, I'll tell you your task in just a minute, David. Okay, so what I'd like you to do 
is think about what brought you out here. Hi, everybody up there. What brought you out? What brought you out here tonight? What brought you out here tonight? What what concern? What question? What feeling? What brought you out here tonight? And just contemplate that for a moment and then reduce that to one word. Just want to get that down to one word. And when you've got that word, please shout it out and David's going to write it down. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Go ahead. Fear. Fear. What? Fear, privacy, intrusion. What came over here? Paranoia. Paranoia. Solidarity. Responsibility. Curiosity. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Democracy, empowerment, behavior. How are you doing, David? Okay. All right. So. All right, let's, let's cut David some slack here, will you please? All right, all right, are you caught up, David? Empowerment, democracy, paranoia, fear. Yep, okay, we're good then. It, slavery. Defense. What was that? What is free? What is free? Free. Collaboration. Parasite. Parasites, corporatization. Okay, let's let David catch up. Revolution, that's a good one. Tell me when you get to revolution. Wait a minute, tell me when you get to revolution, David. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, what is that? Understanding. Okay. Resistance. All right. I think I think we're I think we're getting the gist. So here's what I want to share with you. Um, these are very important and evocative words, and they bear right down to the center of our lives, don't they? The way I look at it, <coughs> the titanic struggles of capital in the 20th century bore down on the economic domain. They bore down on our workplaces, and they bore down on us in our economic roles as consumers and as employees, as workers. In our era, in our time, these titanic struggles of capital are not just bearing down on the economic domain. They bear down fully on society, on the social domain, on our bodies, on our everyday lives, in our homes, in our cars, on our streets, in our cities. They are part of the fabric of our everyday life, out of the economic domain, into the social domain, bearing down on our very bodies and our lives. They call us users. What does that even mean? Could there be a less meaningful word on earth? They call us users. But here's something I want to tell you. <clears throat> I brought this for you. 
So <clears throat> I've been in, uh, well, you know, my book was published f a few weeks ago, early January, mid-January. And I've been on the road pretty much all that time. So I've been in three countries, six cities, and I started <laughs> asking this question of my audiences um, pretty early on in all these different locales. Let me tell you what other people said when I asked them this question, other groups. Sovereignty, determinism, fear, resistance, inequality, bias, revolution, dignity, autonomy, democracy, manipulation, another group, anxiety, manipulation, control, identity, freedom, resistance, power, democracy, law. You hear the echoes? They call us users. And yet here we are across countries, across cities, experiencing so many of the same concerns. I say we are not users. I say we are bound in new psychological, social, political, as well as economic interests. That we have not yet invented the words to describe the ways that we are bound. We have not yet invented the forms of collective action to express the interests that bind us. And that that is a big part of the work that must follow in this year and the next year and the year after that if we are to ultimately interrupt and outlaw what I view as a pernicious rogue capitalism that has no business dominating our society. All right. Um, in the year 1833 in Britain, as industrial capitalism was just emerging, when they talked about the social hierarchy in Britain, they had two terms, the aristocracy and the lower classes. There was no one else. So whether you were a banker or a pauper, or a merchant, whatever, you were all part of the lower classes. I submit to you that that is a parallel to the term users. We are just right now in this catch-all of the lower classes, but soon what will emerge is what emerged a century ago, the idea that there are workers, that there are laborers, that they have interests, and that they will organize around those interests, that there are consumers, and they have interests, and they will act according to their interests. Consumers perpetrated the American Revolution. Laborers fought for enfranchisement and the establishment of real democracy in Britain. These were powerful roles, and we will find our own. What is surveillance capitalism? Surveillance capitalism <clears throat> diverges from the history of capitalism in many, many ways. But here, in this big pattern, it follows the history of capitalism. Let me describe it this way. 
Throughout capitalism, as historians have observed, throughout its history, capitalism claims things that live outside the market dynamic, and it brings them into the market dynamic so that they can become commodities to be sold and purchased. Everybody understands this, right? Industrial capitalism claimed nature for the market dynamic, that it could be reborn as real estate, as land, to be sold, to be purchased. It claimed work for the market dynamic, that it could be reclaimed as labor, wage labor to be sold and purchased. Surveillance capitalism follows in this, in this pathway, but with a dark and strange twist. Because now surveillance capitalism went in search of the last virgin wood. And what it found was private human experience. And what it does is to unilaterally claim private human experience for the market dynamic that it can be reborn as behavioral data. Private human experience claimed as a free source of raw material to be reborn as behavioral data in the logic of surveillance capitalism, these behavioral data are sent into its production processes, elaborate supply chains that capture these behavioral data from every aspect of our lives and activities, channel these data into new production processes that are called what? Artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, all of that. And out of this black box, emerges surveillance capitalism's products. Its products are predictions. I call them prediction products. They are predictions of our behavior, predictions of what we will do now, soon, and later. Turns out many, many businesses have an interest in this knowledge. And these new businesses form <coughs> a new kind of marketplace that trades exclusively in these predictions. Call them behavioral futures. Now, as everybody knows, this whole logic was born and raised in the context of online targeted advertising. And for a long time we thought, oh, this is online targeted advertising. This is the only way advertising can be in the digital. And we adapted and found ways to live with this idea of targeted ads. But what we really didn't think about was the way in which online targeted advertising represents this sequence that I've just described to you. In this case, what Google learned to do was to predict a piece of future behavior, namely a click-through rate probability. That's a piece of future behavior. And what those advertisers are buying in their ad auctions is essentially they're making bets on these predictions of future behavior. That's how it works. This logic, this economic logic, born in Google, elaborated in Google, becoming successful in Google, only did we learn how successful when Google IPO'd in the year 2004, and we discovered that in 1986, when it's, sorry, 
1996, when its revenues were 86 million. I knew there was an 86 in there. <laughs> its revenues were 86 million. Between that year and 2004, when its revenues were 3.2 billion, it actually increased its revenue line by 3,590%. On the strength of these discoveries and this economic logic, so as we begin to understand the economic logic, that's part of the work of my book, uh, as we begin to understand its economic imperatives, what happens is we begin to walk back from the wonderland in which they have put us. And as we, Alice went through the looking glass into the wonderland, we get to walk back, backwards through the looking glass out of the wonderland into the real world where we can start to see things clearly without the fog of rhetoric and obfuscation and euphemism, mendacity and misdirection that have become second nature to the propagandists of surveillance capitalism. And as we walk back, we start to see some things. Like for example, we thought that they were free, that their products and services were free for us. But all the time that we're thinking that they're free, they're thinking that we're free. We're the free raw material. Get them engaged, get them engaged, get them engaged. Keep that data flowing, keep it flowing. Get them engaged anywhere and everywhere, it doesn't matter. Call it a car, call it a house. Call it a digital assistant call it a thermostat, call it a search engine, it doesn't matter. Call it social media, it doesn't matter. Get them engaged, keep the data flowing, complex supply chains flowing to production. <clears throat> we thought <clears throat> we were using social media, but social media was using us. We thought we were searching Google, but Google was Thank you. <laughs> we thought that these companies had privacy policies, but in fact, these companies have surveillance policies. And we became all too vulnerable to something that they told us over and over and over again. If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. When the fact is, and how many of us have lost our bearings on this when the fact is that if you have nothing to hide, then you are nothing. Because everything that you are, the place inside you, your inner resources from which you draw your sense of identity, your sense of voice, your sense of autonomy and moral judgment, your ability to think critically, to resist, even to revolt. These are the capabilities that can only be grown within. John Paul Sartre calls it the will to will. And that will to will grows from within and you should hide it and you should cherish it and it should be private and it should be yours.
So they've destabilized our moral bearings and our sense of self. And what we discover when we learn about the economic imperatives of surveillance capitalism is that these imperatives, it's not that there are all bad people in these companies. These imperatives compel these corporations. They compel these corporations to enter a collision course with democracy a collision course with democracy. And this happens from below and it happens from above. From below, de democracy is diminished because ultimately surveillance capitalists discovered in the heat of competition that the most powerful predictive data come from actually influencing our behavior towards its preferred outcomes. We'll talk more about that with Naomi. But just let me give you that top line for now to say that in order to fulfill its own economic imperatives, surveillance capitalism must undermine human autonomy. It must rob us of decision rights over our own private experience. Is that 15? Five left? Okay, good to know. All right, and I hate to cut this off. However, it is time for the end of the show. I will do my best to get the rest of this played on next week's podcast. And if you'd like to continue listening, please go to YouTube. And it's posted by The Intercept, and the title is The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, there's, there's so much more good info and really want to encourage folks to check it out. So I'm going to sign off. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you would like to contribute to the show, uh, Thanks to all the Patreon contributors out there. The funds go directly to paying for the dues to rent the space to put on this show. And also check out our archive. I've been doing this show for over five years. You can check that out at mutinyradio.fm. Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. And uh, I'm going to play some music. And then we'll be back next week. Stay tuned. Uh, yeah, stay tuned. You know what I mean. Maybe. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of information there. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week. Our societies. But now means that we enter the... It builds me up. It breaks me down. I still get up. White walls on my lick and got miles. Envision and night falls, the day is going wild. The sky can falls down like the eyes of a tired child. So where do we go then? And what are we supposed to do? Cling to your home, kid. Those are the hold you. In the old days, the things that we fold you will be attacked. You be a bitch like some old fool. See what we're born, free up and burning. It's all the more we learn it. Molded by the whole wide world, the cold turning. And die with broken shoulders, weight of a life lived. Some will live longer, but some of us stay kids. We have our own religion, don't all keep the faith. That's why I got visions and need to meditate. They lost so said that we got the highest stakes. Sometimes coming in is the greatest escape. It breaks me down. I still get up.
wish for small bits of solace to flitter and fall swish whisk away all this so when venomous thoughts slither across your conscience just drop the blades and straight shave the nonsense i've been trained on conquest that'll tame confidence am i lame no contest an insane optimist and a populace of popular kids with the pops and positive gifts i'm about as hot as it gets honest i'm honest neurotic sonic accomplice counterculture responsive contemplating the ominous with a prominence that astonishes ponderous honorless hominids alpha dollars and dominance i'm a spit but is that as hot as it gets on some ecology shit it ain't quite a sauna but this climate got you bothered a bit like breathing with a wet towel over your mouth arctic jungle savage land planet disavowed the rules they don't apply the same to all of us the blues we sing cause we supposed to shake it off the news don't always sound the same to all of us these tools won't always work i'm gonna break it off the rules they don't apply the same to all of us the blues we sing cause we supposed to shake it off the news don't always sound the same to all of us these tools won't always work i'm gonna break it off we on the same ship got the same sails praying that we don't tip clinging to the rails dealing with the same shit same junk mail sometimes you think you're running but you an old snail but that's just relativity fast with negativity blasting for discretions all connectivity last one at the table don't eat how we live and see first one at the ladder pulls it up now you're killing me damn Cause I'm a positive dude 99% of the time I'm in a positive mood Tell me that I gotta walk a mile Most colossal of shoes I may be a fool But I'm on the move It's true What they say about Aim before the moon Stop following These stars got work to do Learn as we go And just trying to follow rules Sometimes these rules Prevent you from being a dude hosted by local San Francisco comedians bringing you comedians from all over the United States here. Everything will be live live streaming and podcast post. Get your tickets $10 a show 25 shows a million laughs. It's the 4th annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival brought to you by Benders Counter Offer and Subliminal SF